wizard, get me the hell out of here. My name is Matthew Kroll. And do you think that's air you're breathing? My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film, The Matrix, which, I mean, honestly, Shahir, this conversation that we're going to have right now is technically 21 years in the making. Oof, that means we are super old. Yep, yep, check. And, yep, very, very old. Obviously came of age exactly at the time that this movie came out. Yep. Uh, and are not fans of 21 Jump Street? Is that what we're saying? That's I, what we're saying, right? I, 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 <laughs> yes. Yeah, 21 Jump Street is just the reality if you want to believe it. Um, no, Listen, I was... my, my brain is just firing in all directions right here. I'm just you know drawing from the matrix, pulling numbers down. I'm seeing things in code right now. I'm not even uh, doing that. So... I'm doing you one better. I'm like one level lower. I'm just going... And it's like having like the Matrix soundtrack is is playing through my mind uh, literally twenty four seven since I rewatched this film. Oh, I thought you were gonna say since uh, since nineteen ninety nine. Since nineteen ninety nine, you know, yeah, Wait, Rob now, Zombie. Now, is and... it is it the um yeah is it the actual like new middle and electro techno funk that you enjoy, or is it the Don Davis score as described by Stephen Gallagher in our last episode? Honestly, both, man. I mean, if you but like I I had I owned the the soundtrack, not the score. So you know they had like propeller heads on there, and again, Rob yeah. Rob Zombie at one point because he's in the club, Prodigy, of course, Deftones, Monster Magnet. This was like Rammstein. Like this yeah. was a this was the who's who of Matt's angst years uh so i absolutely loved it yeah yeah it's also that that sort of hybrid period where like electronic music is kind of fusing with hip-hop at some point as well and you're sort of getting that sort of like the things that i like are starting to have elements of music that i didn't typically listen to at that point right and so it's it's all it's all melding together baby it's like a spoon bending to uh, in over itself wow we're um, just gonna keep <laughs> Pulling yeah, out all sorts of oatmeal cookies from the oven and try to make sure that our references are on point. Yeah, let's oracle this up. But uh, <laughs> this actually, actually, I gotta, I gotta ask. Um, not, what is, what is know, the Matrix? What is the Matrix? What is the Matrix? No, but we. Why did we choose to do this film this week? Because I, I was involved in this decision making process as well. So it's not, it's not just on you. But I, I, I think, is it a comfort level thing? Is it a, is it's, it a? It's twofold, my friend. It is a hundred percent a comfort thing, as we know. Uh, fuck the the world is uh, is a terrible place. Uh, Black Lives Matter. But the the so yeah, it is a it is a comfort film. It is a comfort film on that level, and I did enjoy it. My brain got to like turn off and on throughout it, and it was very, very nice, and just sort of felt like a warm blanket of cinematic uh, memory coming over me. Just both the experiences of me seeing it the first time, but also the many other times. I think I've probably seen this movie like thirty times. Um, uh, you know how many times I've seen this movie? How many? Twice. Really? Yeah, this was the second time I've seen it. That's insane. <laughs> That's fucking insane. Uh, but that, so that was the one reason. But in yeah. our ever uh, disintegrating reality that we live in now, um, there was a there was some Twitter discourse going on and some discussion about the Matrix. And by discussion, I mean uh, Elon Musk uh, tweeted uh, just a simple tweet that said, "Take the red pill," which is obviously from oh, this film. Yes. But yeah. then that got you know that's been conscripted to like. Uh, you know, right-leaning people like really peeking behind the curtain of the of the leftist propaganda machine. Uh, mm. the, fuck that definition. And then Ivanka Trump retweeted it and said, "Taken." Mm. And, then, and then and then she's not yeah. referencing what, what. Well, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> but then, but then 
Uh, then uh, Lily Wachowski uh, replied to that tweet and said, "Fuck both of you," <laughs> <laughs> and and it was the it was just an icing on a terrible, terrible cake. Oh, yeah. um, for a person who doesn't, uh, for the you know both the Wachowski sisters who don't like to uh, uh, speak in public very often, I think this was the perfectly timed uh, response to this uh, to this tweet. Well, the interesting uh, thing too is, and and this sparked a whole discussion topic, at least on the people that um, that I uh, follow on on Twitter about how, and and you know I definitely saw this, but there, there's definitely more points that I missed about how this is this of course can be absolutely read and is partially sort of almost subconsciously designed to be. Uh, the story of the Matrix is kind of, especially the first one, uh, sort of a, a, a trans story. Um, yep. It, it, it yeah, is a, sure. it is a, it is a. It, there's, there's many, many elements of it. And we'll get into that as we sort of go through. So it, it, it functioned as both, my friend. Uh, I was comforted, and I also saw some. I, I feel like some, some newer angles of the film that, like you know, whatever me in junior year of high school didn't quite grasp, and mm-hmm. me who was an action junkie kept watching over and over and over again. So it was a good, it was a good trip down memory lane with some with some very nice detours uh, into uh, becoming a, a better adult. <laughs> All right. Well, for uh, I'm gonna. I'll save my opinion other than say that uh, some I think it was first year college uh, Shahir was not the biggest fan of this particular movie. That and, makes sense uh, to me. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And uh, I have some opinions about it that I will uh, categorize as the Death Star conundrum. And I'll uh, talk about that when we get to it. Love but it. Before I am backtracking here, we've got a couple other things we want to do, which is that we when I rewatched the movie, there was a thing that I had completely forgotten about the movie, which is that a friend of mine is in this movie uh, in a fairly prominent role. So we will be talking to Julian Arahanga uh, through uh, in this episode. And I've got a great interview with him uh, who plays APOC in the film uh, and has probably one of the coolest non-bullet time moments in the film, according to you. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, yeah. Uh, Apoc, the moment when, for whatever reason, it always stuck with me. The moment when uh, Apoc, they're they're escaping. I think that's after the wet wall scene when they like go down and they're trying to find a line out uh, because uh, Cipher's fucking with them. Uh, Apoc spins a gun really quick and hands it to Neo, like the first gun that Neo touches, and he just says, "I hope the Oracle gave you some good news." And it's just that like, oh fuck moment where like, it, it, well. it it's it's wonderful. I have a great story about that. I did ask uh, Julian about that moment, so yeah. stay tuned. stick around for that. Uh, also, uh, side note: then- Can we just? I want to. I want to talk. Look, Shahir, you you don't name drop often, okay? Yeah. But when you do, you do it real weird. Like, what do you mean? So, so when when we were talking about doing the Matrix, and we talked for a bit, and we decided, and we we're trying to think of like, oh, who can we get on for a guest? Like this person, that person, da 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 da. And then, like a, I don't know, like half a day later, you're like. Oh yeah, you know I know Apoc, and I was like, "Well, we'll, we'll call him." Like, like it was it. It didn't even click in your brain that you no. knew one of the people in the fucking Matrix. And I got and I got to be honest with you, it's because I've seen up until last week I had seen the movie once. And what's funny is I met uh, Julian after I'd seen the movie, and I've worked with him a bunch and know him well, and he's a really good dude, and I really uh, enjoy uh, hanging out with him whenever I can. I had completely forgotten that he was in The Matrix. You are a monster. You are a monster. I'm glad you're here and around and in my life, but you're still a monster. I and, am a monster. Uh, I cannot, I can't handle it. This movie was so, well, we'll get into it, but so weirdly formulative. 
Of course. This uh, is you are the target demographic. I am the target demographic. Or for am this, I? Or it, are what? you? Uh, let's see. There's a lot um, of conscripting get, going on with the Matrix. <laughs> got a couple of emails here, um, and I love this first email that I want to read it first because uh, what will follow is exactly the opposite of what this email is asking us to do. What? Uh, but in the best possible intention. Uh, and this email comes to us from Ricky. I love your takes on most everything, though I admit I side with Matt on most things. Oh, uh, right, thank you, Ricky. Let's just delete the rest of this email. Oh, I come on. We don't need to read the rest of this. Uh, I've never emailed before and usually don't complain, uh, having worked in customer service my whole life, uh, though this technically isn't a complaint. I enjoy your email reading and discussions before you talk about a movie. I really do. Your talk about Spielberg on the Trolls episode was great. Special co- social commentary and other tangential discussions are part of the reason I listen. That being said, (laughs) have you guys ever thought about breaking up episodes into two parts? I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I just want to hear about the movie. I might finally watch something that you did a while back and that I had skipped and wanted to hear your thoughts on it. And I admit I have to fast forward through your discussions in an hour and a half episode to get to the 30 minutes y'all are talking about the movie. I don't want to complain about something free and you both take your time out to do. I truly enjoy your discussions about everything and how how you can go from one subject to another. Uh, but sometimes I just want to hear about the movie. Thanks for being awesome and I love the show. Thank you, oh, Ricky. Ricky. Oh. I really enjoyed that email. Um, Yes, we are nothing if not side tangent uh, talkers. Sure. And it is something that we are fully aware of. We always talked about, should we do the emails at the beginning? Should we do them at the end? Should we jump in? And one of the things I think, you know, I was really um, gung-ho about, you know, in terms of this podcast is that we're not just like a review episode. We want to have like a discussion about the movie. I think, you know, I've said my, um, I think, I you know, key idea that I think we should be injecting into the podcasting discussion is that we continue the discussion that the movie begins. And, you know, that means, you know, like going on tangents, finding, you know, how does this movie affect us in our li- real lives? What does it mean in, in all that's in so, all sorts of things? It does mean we do go on a lot of tangents. And the I trickery <laughs> of that, the trickery of that too is, uh, and, and definitely we understand. And this is one of those along. tangents, by the way. Oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> so Ricky, guess what? You caused the thing. You you now are your own worst enemy. No, no, there's nothing wrong with this email. I actually love that you wrote this in. Uh, uh, the, the, the way that like, because it is sort of the discussion continued after the film began it, oftentimes what I really enjoy is the discussion points from people emailing in of like the last two or three episodes. Um, And I know that doesn't fit into the naming structure of the episode and all that, but what we will do, Shahir, we talked about this beforehand, is, uh, you know, behind the podcasting scenes, we are in the process of doing some revamping of how our our podcast is hosted and all that jazz. But what we can do uh, in the meantime, before we can do sort of like specialty links with time codes and things like that, is we can kind of now let you know when the official movie conversation starts, or basically, to be honest when the emails end because <laughs> yeah. because because we kind of talked about the beginning of the movie a little bit already and then we dipped back and we're going to dip forward so uh ricky thank you so much it's for a roller coaster yeah it's a roller coaster J- join us we will we enjoy having you on yes thank you so much for the kind words and i hope that at least when you are in the mood to skip our uh, and I, hard air quotes you can't see it witty banter um <laughs> then you can at least take the time code especially this will be the first episode we do that for in the description uh and you can just jump on in to where i start saying that the matrix is fucking awesome 
So right. that well, look for that, that when we go. But just to be clear, there. that's not now. No, it's not now. That's when we're gonna be we got two more emails. Entire episode. <laughs> we're gonna be we're gonna be referring to the fact that we're on a podcast. It's like a podcast reality show right now. Is no, we're, we're on the on podcast, podcast matrix talking about the pod- Technically, podcast. Technically, Ricky's in the podcast matrix, and oh we God. are the podcast matrix. Oh, we're the we're the machines. We are. I I, I called dibs on um on uh Agent Squidward. Smith. Oh, I'm gonna be Squidward. <laughs> what? Squidward. Oh, you want to be one of the squiddy. You want to be the one of the squiddy bits, or you could be the architect. Nah, oh yeah, that that's yeah, pompous and ergo uh, saying vis-a-vis a, concordantly. That's pretty yeah, much concordantly. your personality. Saying a lot words. without saying a lot. That's yeah. that's me. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'll take next the next up. We got one. an email from Tourist Man. I got this one. If you want, roll into it for us. Okay, Tourist Man writes. As I'm sure you guys are aware, there has been a social media push for a release of the Snyder Cut of the Justice League. And while I side with Movie Bob on this one, and he suggests that you all go check out his video on the subject, I do as well, there will be a release of the official Snyder Cut coming in 2021 exclusively to HBO Max. My question is, do you guys think that this is genuine, or do you believe that this is just a marketing stunt for HBO Max and Zack Snyder? Thank you, Turs, man. Thanks, Turs. Uh, it's both. It's <laughs> Actually, both. Let's backtrack here a little bit because I I will admit I have seen the release the Snyder Cut hashtag, and I've uh, obviously you know like I know I'm aware that this thing exists, but I really don't know what the controversy is about this. Well, we in the year of some Lord uh, 2020, um, uh, everything has to be an argument. So so the fact that Justice League was less than good. Uh, made people very vocal about it. And then the people that had invested a lot of time into the Zack Snyderverse series of films, uh, you know, uh, Man of Steel, uh, Bats v. Soups, Donna Jays, they got upset and they blamed the fact that, and again, this is weird too, because as the story goes, Zack Snyder had a family, um, uh, horrible thing happened to his family and had to step down. And then Joss Whedon came in and took it across the finish line. Um, the film itself is um, does not feel great and doesn't feel really terribly cohesive. Um, and so everyone was like, oh, well, if Zack Snyder was there, it would have been amazing. And then the people that didn't like it were like, well, no, it fucking wouldn't have. And then that went back and forth. And then Zack Snyder made a comment on how he did have a cut of the movie that was like something like three hours and 45 minutes or four hours long, but didn't like sort of go into detail. And what he actually means is that like he had, a, a, yeah, there's a cut, but it's like, 80% animatics and unfinished shit. And then people just took that as gospel like there was some hidden finished film that Zack Snyder had that the studio was keeping from us. Um, and it was just a, a series of idiocracy going back and forth. Um, and then maybe four or five months when like all the stars of the film started saying release the Snyder Cut, that's mm-hmm. how you know that this was actually going to be a corporate move. Like, Ben Affleck and Gail Gadot are not going to be tweeting, release the Snyder Cut, (laughs) unless they know that they're getting to be... And there's nothing wrong with this. I'm not judging them. But, like, unless they know they're going to get a payday from going back to working on this movie for something. And so when HBO Max announced that there will be the Snyder Cut of the film, though they're not sure if it's going to be an extended film or, like, a six-part miniseries... Ugh. Um, that uh, the the fact of the matter is that it's going to take upwards of $30 million to create, and there's going to be a ton of reshoots. Meaning, so the on the anti-Snyder Cut side, people like, see, the, it wasn't done. This isn't done. They're just building this thing. And then on the pro side of it, people have sort of forgotten about that and been like, well, it doesn't fucking matter because this is what he could have intended and yada, yada, yada. Has everyone forgotten that the movie is terrible? 
Well, that's the thing. <laughs> like, and, like, but what they're not, saying and is not that in that... a redeemable way. Like, I don't see a cut of this movie fixing the fundamental problems of this movie. Uh, I, you know, 100%. Though, granted, <laughs> in the right hands, and I'm not saying it will be put there, but in the right hands, $30 million can do a lot of things. Sure. So, 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 look. I wish could probably this... help come up with a COVID vaccine at this point, but you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. No, no, no. Let's let's, uh, let's 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 drag Ben Affleck back to the thing that he fucking hates, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> to the franchise about superheroes from the man who hates superheroes. Um, oh, now I take umbrage with that. I don't. I I have. We've talked about this in the past, and you can go back and listen to our episodes. I 100 percent disagree with with that statement. And that, I disagree Zach, with your disagreement. Yeah, but the, the idea that Zack Snyder hates superheroes, I think, is completely wrong. I 100% disagree. But that's, we go back, there's any any superhero one we did, I guarantee you we did that yeah. conversation. Uh, Tersman, yeah, I, it's both. It's 100% a marketing stunt for HBO and Zack Snyder, and that is why it's genuine. Because the entirety, the entirety of these films is to, like, the cold sort of... Anyway, the, what was delivered to us was just rolled out so we would pay money for it. Like, <laughs> by the end of it, I, I I failed to see any love put into the film. It was, get this thing done. Right. Um, uh, I'm, would I watch it? I don't know. I have a, I have a little bit of a... Um, I, have, I have a hope in Zack Snyder's uh, filmmaking ability and in this sort of... A, this kind of... I don't know if it's, it's uh, unfounded, but this belief that there is a great movie in Zack Snyder... And I haven't seen it yet. And I think Dawn of the Dead was kind of the closest we've gotten to the great Zack Snyder movie. I think that movie's really put like together Man very of Steel. well. Um, so we'll maybe maybe when I see it, I don't know. Well, we'll see. I mean, it's gonna uh, be if you got HBO, we're gonna get it. I mean, here's the, here's the dark truth of it: we're a movie podcaster here, and we lean a little bit, at least on my end of the spectrum, on the nerdier side. Yeah, we're gonna I'm gonna watch this thing, and I'd talk about it. Right. But uh, and then I realize I'm part of the problem, but. You know, <laughs> them numbers got to go up. Am I right? We got to make the non-money from this podcast. We got to make some some audio hay. All right, keep let's keep pushing these diversions down with one more email from Elias. Why oh, did I do that right? Elias, Elias. No, I'm gonna keep I going don't know with that. What you're All doing? All right. In in uh, a, a few episodes uh, uh, ago uh, about uh, Michael Bay's Six Underground, Shahir brought up the fact that an author's work will reveal something about the author that they did not intend to include in their work. As someone who is mildly interested in creating art but has never yet done so, this terrifies me. I'm afraid of what my work will say about me. Do I harbor unconscious prejudices and biases that would be patently obvious to others? Is what I think interesting, uh, consider interesting really just shallow? Have I consumed too much 90s and early 2000s junk media to ever be able to write a realistic female character? I know if this did happen, it would be an opportunity to learn and grow and my fear that, oh no, I harbored uh, unconsciously harbored a sexist bigoted racist perspective, therefore I'm terrible, is irrational. But the idea of creating something loved one and strangers may uh, judge me for, well, the idea that I might be unwittingly contributing to some harmful trend is still terrifying. I think this is probably something any creator goes through early in their career, and I just wanted to write in and hear your perspectives and personal experiences with this. Uh, Alias, I love this email so fucking much. This has been, side note, all three of these emails have been wonderful, and I actually really enjoyed talking about all of them for different reasons, but your email here like, actually hits an emotional like like twang for me um, because twang. i have felt this way a hundred times i don't know shahir if if you have if you ever sort of i see so shahir we we you and i have different strengths and weaknesses okay uh i am a highly um 
as a weakness sort of um I, I I can be paralyzed by possibility. I am okay. an anxious person, and um, it ha- it it gets me into the, a lot of the the sort of mental trip ups that that Alias has put out here. Have do you feel that way when you're creating a thing? Uh a hundred percent. I absolutely do. I I think I'm paralyzed by a uh, fear of being exposed as a fraud when I'm making any art. Imposter syndrome. Uh, yes. Yeah, a complete imposter syndrome. But. Uh, uh, and I actually did respond to Alias via email about this because I think uh, what I was saying about uh, Michael Bay uh, and you know the uh, the my sort of theory of auteur, auteur theory, which is um, it actually kind of stems from a word I absolutely love, uh, which is uh, parapraxis, and it's uh, a Freudian. It's it's essentially the the technical word for what a Freudian slip is, which oh, is cool. that you say uh, yeah, it's called a parapraxis, and it's when you um, say something that you didn't intend to reveal but reveals a truth about you you said the quiet thing loud you said the quiet thing loud and i think what it's not a it's not actually um uh, a sort of inherent fear or you know like you're revealing something about yourself it's just that your work speaks a truth about who you are and that's what i think i mean by uh what i was saying about michael bay is that it's not that this is a, a, a bad revelation or anything. It's that his work and everyone else's, you know, like other filmmakers' work speaks inherent truths about who they are as human beings. And what, the, the, the way I kind of think about this is, is it's not for artists to kind of filter what they think because I think that's problematic. It's, it's a way for us as critics and viewers to read how those films work. And it's just a, it's an interpretive tool more than anything. And, but, but on the other side, as an artist, yeah, I completely feel the fear of creating something new all the time, you know, and I agonize about uh, every frame, uh, you know, because, because my background is in visual effects uh, and editing. So I really care about like, how does this frame connect to this frame? And but, it like keeps me up at night, every night. Do you, uh, so this is sort of, I think where we differ, uh, because uh, do you though, then it sounds to me like you're worried that it's sort of in that imposter syndrome-esque thing where you're worried that like, you'll find people will find out you're a fraud. People will watch your movie and say that wasn't a good movie because he did these things wrong, right? Yeah, like yeah, where, yeah. It's 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 a it's it, a. It, I feel like people are gonna look at my work, judge the quality of your work. Yeah. Um. I think what Alias is saying, and I think what I sort of lean more toward is the the idea that like, what beyond skill at the art you are creating and the judgment of that skill, um, what that piece of art when someone makes a piece of art like you know. Is that a way that people can y- – your your biases, even if you don't mean to have them, will be exposed? And and the interesting thing about that is I do agree that that is a thing that can happen. Um, what I what I love about this email so much and why, alias, I am not um, – and I hope I'm saying that right. I, I am not worried about you is because you are asking this question. And the people that don't ask this question and keep doing the same shit that might reveal that perhaps they have sexist undertones or they uh, only can speak in, uh, you know, r- racial slurs or whatever, or like just insensitive shit. The people that keep making content and don't adjust themselves to the times and what is, uh, you know, I kind of, for the lack of a better term, to being nice to all people, uh, those are the people that we, that like, that this becomes a problem for because say say check this out say you do make a thing and say you do have a bias i mean you joked about the 90s and 2000s junk media i would write a realistic female character maybe your first female character you write there are issues 
people are going to tell you those issues. And then you, because you care about this, you cared enough to write this email in, will make sure that in your next work that you will address those issues. Hmm. And 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 I, I find that really that that self-awareness very, very beautiful. And that is why in this particular case, I'm so glad you wrote in, but I am not worried about you. Do not be afraid to create um and and do not be afraid to have your creation not be perfect because nothing is gonna be. So just yeah. keep going. Um, yeah, and then and then the other thing, just the only thing here is that um, the truths that you speak, no matter what they are, make your art uniquely yours, and that's yeah. that's important. Yeah, you know. So I would rather see uh, whatever it is you make and whatever it is you're feeling concerned about or worried about or whatever it reveals because it's uniquely yours you know like um and i think that's an important part of it as well and we shouldn't be and it is terrifying and and i'm fully aware of that and and the fact of the matter is it's power you know i have paralyzing fear when it comes to creating things in terms of like getting things out i have a project right now that i do not want to show anybody uh, (laughs) but i've invested a lot of time and money in it and i will eventually have to uh and it keeps me up at night uh and i am uh, slow to finish it because of that paralyzing fear. Um, but this is your supercut of the new Power Rangers movie, where you, in it, fact, are now the Black Ranger. You put yourself. Let me just in. say, it took a lot of time to rotoscope my face into that into that mask. Um, I see but, your green you screen know, setup. I got yeah, you, but it's worth it. You know, uh, it really, it really <laughs> is righting a wrong, uh, an injustice <laughs> that was caused. A, you know, dawn many of years ago. <laughs> yeah, there was a dawn of injustice. Actually, I wonder if this happened around 1999 when, when I was around the Matrix and the Holy world unraveled shit. and changed. All right, uh, we should get back to the Matrix. All right, hey, uh, guess what? Guess what? Check your times because it's about time that I said the Matrix is fucking awesome. Is it, though? Yes. Did you hear that? And that's the podcast. Um, no. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, to start off, I'm going to tell you what IMDb says all these 21 years later on what uh, The Matrix is about. A computer hacker learns from mysterious rebels about the true nature of his reality and his role in the war against its controllers. Mm. I love this description because it does not give away a fucking major plot point that, of course, now, uh, 21 years, spoilers for The Matrix, uh, that the the villains, or at least as it goes in this first film, are the machines, and that the machines have taken over the human race to use them as batteries. Um, Yeah, with the Ever Ready Battery movie. Yeah. So, like, uh, I I think this is is one of their best descriptions I've read in a long time. But you you do say this every week, but it's like, you realize that these aren't written by the same person, right? I don't care. It's (laughs) like IMDb is not a single unified author. I don't. I also don't care, but it's it's a platform. That's like you know, it's it's a platform that people put up things that like is lasting. It's not like a Twitter account or something that changes. Like this is. I mean, it can, but they don't often. This is what the Internet Movie Database is comfortable saying the t- small synopsis of a film is, and I think this it's one a, is good. Okay, all right. Fair so, Mister so, Internet Movie Database or Misses or 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 they them or wh- whomever, um, yeah. thank you for writing this uh, writing this description. <laughs> All right. Um, 1999, a number, another summer, get down, sound of the funky drummer. <laughs> I don't but, know what you're <laughs> uh, Where were you when you saw The Matrix for the first time? Oh, man, junior year in high school, baby. Merrimack, <laughs> New Hampshire, premiere eight cinemas where my friends and I slowly uh, took over and, and broke that machine. Uh, but we loved that cinema dearly. Um, uh, amazing night. 
Uh, I couldn't believe the film. Side note, uh, just in case anyone was wondering, my cool cred, I was already wearing a uh, black leather trench coat like for like cool. a year before. Uh, I can picture it now. It's, that uh, you're so cool. Yeah, I was so cool. Uh, <laughs> so but no, cool. that was a really good night. Um, you know, we always had this thing where like we'd go to the movies and then you had to walk across a long sort of corporate parking lot near a highway and then you could get to a McDonald's. So it was always like the movie, the walk with your friends and or date, and then uh, sweet, delicious, salty treats at the end of the at the end of the thing. Uh, and only once flurry. did I did I ever get a milkshake thrown at me. I dodged it, much All like right. Neo dodges bullets in this film. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I uh, I believe I was I was on a date with a girl named Tiffany. Uh, we made out. It was pretty sweet. And then I got <laughs> McDonald's afterward. And I feel like that experience for young 16-ish year old me, seeing the Matrix, having those things happen, is was was perfection in the most simple, uh, uh, ups <laughs> like sort of like northeastern uh, New England. Uh, Dumb kid perfection. It was you had a fucking sweet night, bro. It was a sweet night, bro. It would have been called it's a fucking sweet night, bro. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. where I was. What about you, buddy? Uh, I gotta be honest with you. I I saw it in the movie theater just like everybody else. Uh, I saw it with some friends. We enjoy. I, I do not remember the context, and I, I do remember the feeling of walking out of the theater with the. Uh, is it the Rage Against the Machine track that's playing at the Come end? Come on! Yeah, yeah, and and I remember like. While I there was something about the movie that I will talk about at length uh, later that I that I disliked, uh, I do remember that feeling of walking out of the movie, and I think I might have had a leather jacket on. Leather jackets were all the rage back then. Um, well, it wasn't a duster. I, it wasn't like down to your ankles. No, it was not down to my ankles. Uh, it was actually just uh, just uh, under my nips. Um, but <laughs> but also that would fit into the matrix. That would fit into the matrix, just under the nips. Um, and uh, uh, you know, like that that just that feeling of like. I distinctly remember the feeling of, of feeling empowered when you walk out of a movie. You know, that sort of cool walk you do when you come out of a movie because you're not talking about the movie yet. You're still kind of, your brain is still half in the movie and it's half out of the movie. Yeah. And you're kind of like, you know, you're, you're one, you're, you're half in the matrix, half out of the matrix. So I, I, there, there, I, I think for me, um, this movie does a lot right, and there's no denying the influence, the importance of this movie on on cinema. You know, like as far as pop culture movies go, you know, uh, there have been few movies that have made such a deep impression that this one, li- like this one, has. And you know, I think its antecedents are things like Star Wars, for example, Jaws. Um, in more recent years, it would be you know things like Lord of the Rings, um, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. These are these are the kinds of movies that make a deep impression. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody mm-hmm. is engaging with it. Everybody is engaging not only with the aesthetics of the film, but also the ideas of the film. You know, obviously, red pilling has kind of become a shorthand for, um, you know, pulling back the curtain on the way our world actually works. And it has become problematic in that way. But it is the idea that people are engaging with it, you know, like it is. And, and you know, the other the other thing is that this this movie is such a huge uh, it's such a it's such a beautiful fusion of so many different pieces of pop art, all kind of pop art and philosophy. It's not often you will get an action movie that is this invested in philosophy and yeah. ideas as it is in you know the sheer um, um, 
visceral thrills of actually just delivering spectacle in a way that is profoundly affecting and escalating at every turn. There's not a uh, ton of action scenes in this movie. Like, I, there's I would, like six, maybe five. But they escalate and they build upon yes. each other really beautifully. Um, I For this week, I was doing a graphics project, so I was able to just kind of throw all three movies up during the week. So I, I did watch all three. Um, and it was interesting to note, you know, what had happened to these films after um, uh, after the initial release and, and kind of, you know, essentially how the two sequels really didn't live up to the expectations of the original, but offered something somewhat interesting, and I think we can talk about that in some detail. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, I do want to uh, uh, throw up this interview that we uh, that I was lucky enough to do this week with Julian Arahanga, who plays APOC in this film. Yes. Uh, and uh, who... You know, has some really great stories, not only about like how he scored the role, but but also like just fun stories of what it was like being on set, being a part of something where, you know, imagine being in the Matrix without knowing what the Matrix was. Yeah, that's insane. So, yeah, so, let's play that up. I want to hear it. All right. It's really good to see you again. Uh, I'm glad you're keeping well in New Zealand. I was watching The Matrix the other night, and we're doing obviously an episode about The Matrix. But the thing that I got most excited about was actually seeing your face. And I know you from a lot of New Zealand films. And I think a lot of New Zealand listeners will know you from, you know, Once for Warriors, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. But if you go to your IMDb page, The Matrix is the first thing that comes up on your page. And I was curious what it meant to be in a big movie like this, despite the the fact that you know for me as a new zealander you you know one of the most iconic performances in new zealand cinema history is nick hickey in once for warriors i feel really blessed to have been part of once for warriors which happened before the matrix and you know it certainly changed the cinema landscape in new zealand with the way that the movie launched itself uninhibited <laughs> into all everyone's lives and into New Zealand society and I guess into the New Zealand psyche. So I feel very grateful to have been a part of that. And then when I think about The Matrix, it was a truly game-changing sci-fi film. Again, it feel, feels really, uh, I feel really blessed to have been a, a part of those. And my involvement in that film came about in like a two-week window. I had no idea what The Matrix was. I mean, nobody did at that point, right? You were obviously in the first movie before anyone knew what a phenomenon The Matrix was ever going to be. Yeah, and I was actually living in Brooklyn. And I was actually working for an interior decorator. And... I arrived late to work and he just started berating me, you know, and just saying, do you always just want to be a bum? And I was like, wow, what are you talking about? He said, this lady's trying to ring you about a job opportunity. And um, fortunately, the lady rang again and she said, hi, I'm from Shanahan Casting in Australia and the, we're making a movie called The Matrix and the directors would like to meet you. So within an hour, I was borrowing some money off the boss and was uh, <laughs> in a car on my way to JFK and landed in Los Angeles and found myself in a hotel in Beverly Hills looking at 
a table and on the table was a script that said the matrix so i read the script like a couple of times and then i went and met the directors next day and the the conversation covered rugby it covered once for warriors it covered new zealand and it covered what i had read in their screenplay even after reading it twice i still didn't really have it worked out what it was or what it was trying to do what it was saying so i told the wachowskis i said you know uh, i really wondered what was going on inside of their heads because i didn't really comprehend uh, what the story was but after about an hour and a half they stood up politely and shook my hand and then they left and that was pretty much it that was kind of i guess my interview audition um did not you, sure did, and did you read for the role or did, did you just have a conversation no i just had this conversation in a hotel i had no idea what was going on and so i just got on the airplane and went back to new york the next day though um the wachowskis rang me at work and said um am i coming to australia with them <laughs> the rest they say is history and did you tell your boss the interior designer to, uh, where to go or did you have to say thank you for giving you the money for the flight <laughs> <laughs> no um this, despite giving me a hard time uh he helped me uh um through some pretty tough times at this point the matrix wasn't the matrix so what did you all think of what you were doing from my memory, we started to get to know each other a little bit before we started shooting. Kiri Ann was really generous with her time, and I'd always been, you know, a, a fan of Lawrence Fishburne's. And Keanu, you know, he, he had a lot on his shoulders carrying those movies. So by the time we actually got on set, I was familiar, was starting to get familiar with people. But, you know, I had not been doing acting in New York, so I hadn't acted for over a year. And now I yeah. was on a Hollywood set with A-listers. And, you know, it, it did take a bit of getting used to and, you know, like be able to step into my own power and own the role and own that character. And um, I guess that was one thing that I really remember and liked about a Hollywood system is that everybody is expected to just bring it there was no rehearsal period the script was so tight there wasn't a word out of place I think if you read the script and then you look at the movie there's almost no difference yeah and I know that the Wachowskis had storyboarded and planned every shot every move how it was going to go every line almost edited it in their minds as well there's a funny thing about the matrix and, and all the follow-ups as well which is that they're really unabashedly multicultural and i wondered if you had to sort of play down your new zealandness or whether they were kind of just open to doing it however you wanted to do it that's exactly what it was they were open to people bringing their impression I think if you look at um, even the series they did, Sense8, again, mm. has a really multicultural feel about everything. In this kind of sci-fi world, that diversity is something that 
futurists say that the world would look like. But then, you know, if you think about 1998, that probably wasn't the vibe that was going down in 1998. You know, a lot of minorities were struggling just to have a a voice, let alone a seat at the table. So, um, and that way, I think that the Wachowskis, you know, they've they've paved uh, a lot of the way for diversity and multiculturalism um, in the screen. There's an interesting thing with your character, Apoc, who has kind of seen everything at this point. He kind of seems a little jaded. And Keanu comes along and he's like one of a few people Morpheus has tried to bring on. And so my co-host, Matt, was just always excited by the... He, he just he talked about it right away when I told him that you were coming on. It was a scene when you flip him the gun, hand it to him and say, I hope the Oracle said something to you, you know, said something good to you. And like, I guess what I'm sort of curious about is that, you know, obviously you're saying that you hadn't worked in a year and you're turning up on set, you know, in this big Hollywood film, but in, you know, this and other scenes, you're kind of having to own the leading man, you know, like how does, how do you kind of like negotiate that when you're sort of off camera, you know, trying to be cool (laughs) as I'm I'm presuming. Yeah. I I actually don't remember, um, you know, Keanu and I, discussing too much about you know that uh, apoc is belittling neo um you know obviously in the kitchen you know in the dining room when he's there and then yeah when after we've seen the uh, oracle I, i think that um keanu in his own professional way just and for the sake of the story not ego you know he just goes well my character's got to take it on the chin here and (laughs) you know he doesn't necessarily be subservient but he gives an unassured response the Keanu stare is what we've kind of described it which is you know in in the nicest way yeah he gives an unassured response the Keanu stare (laughs) and and and, you know that's enough of a moment for everyone to kind of doubt really what the oracle said to him and if he actually took that on board did you uh did you have to train to learn to flip the gun no i just <laughs> they gave us a gun and i was just like i wasn't even meant to flip it i think it just passes on my gun but i was like wow everyone else is like shooting and doing all this stuff <laughs> if all i get is this little little moment i'm gonna try and do something with the gun so i think we nailed it the first couple of times or something so just kind of it worked. So. Oh, that's that's amazing. That's uh, I'm surprised you weren't cast in every western from that point on. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you on set for 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 the Matrix? I think the contract was for three months, but it ended up being like six months because you know thing was going over and over, kind of each day. But there came a point in filming where and and you know this happens on most films where the energy starts to run low mm-hmm. and at Fox Studios they showed just like 15 minutes of footage and it had the effect that they were looking for everybody was like I've actually never seen anything like this before I think everybody skipped to work on Monday. <laughs> and, then, and then just one thing. I remember I asked Lawrence Fishburne one evening as we were making this. I said, so Fish, 
<laughs> what is the matrix what is all of this matrix even about and Lawrence Fishburne looked at me and he said well son the way I see it there's Maoris in the future <laughs> and you and that that's all you needed to keep going right <laughs> so yeah all right <laughs> My man. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> so I have a funny story, which is that I, I met Timoroa Morrison on a plane once. We were sitting next to each other and he'd just come back from LA from some auditions or something. But we were talking and he mentioned how he had done all these movies that he was very proud of, uh, but being in Star Wars paid for his house <laughs> and continues to pay for his house. He was like, you know, he was like, every year I get a check and I don't know what, you know, and I just, it paid for everything. I know it's a slightly different kettle of fish, but I I mean, I wonder about the sort of long-term effect of being in a movie that is as culturally big as The Matrix was. When you look back at your body of work that you've done, and if you've got those types of credits there that you know people can easily find on IMDb, then I've really found that those are useful, and I play them too. You know what the world's like? It's hard. It's hard to get you know, somebody to meet, an executive to meet. It's hard to get a commissioner to meet with you. You've just got to be unashamedly saying, hi, I'm this person. I've been in Once Were Warriors. I've been in The Matrix. I am somebody. In New Zealand, a lot of people, we like, you know, as you know, everybody likes to kind of play everything down and but that doesn't work out there in the world, especially when there's uh, you know, another 100,000 people still want that same meeting. And I haven't played the video game, but I, I saw that your character makes an appearance in the video game, uh, Path of Neo, at any point. Did you have any involvement in that sort of ancillary side of it? Oh, I don't remember doing any voice stuff. I didn't actually have any active um, role in the making of the game and stuff. I've, you know, I've never actually even played the game. I've never actually seen it. I I, I haven't, but I, I just kind of like uh, uh, sped through some playthroughs that were on YouTube just to watch and see how it was. And, you know, the Wachowskis had this big idea with the uh, second and third movie that the game would connect stories in the movie. So they wanted to have people would, would play the games and then they would come into stories in the movie and you because right. you played the game, you'd know where they'd been. Right. Well, I... On the other hand, I might get residuals from that game somehow. So it's the best game ever. Everyone should <laughs> buy a copy. Buy two. Buy two copies of the the Path of Neo right now. <laughs> it's fair to say you, you're not taking as many acting roles as as you used to be. If APOC came back for some reason, you know, people come back in this franchise all the time. Would you have you hung up the spurs, or would you would you happily go back? Oh, for that film, I'd certainly go back. Um, other than that, I'm super, super busy. Mm. You know, we've got a lot of things on the boil at the moment, and I, I couldn't really take three or four months off to to do an acting project. I don't think without the rest of it all falling over. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. I really appreciate it. I think uh, is there a place where anyone can check out your work and you know look at what you've been up to and the films that you've been working on? Just Google our films. I think that's AWA. Um, so, yeah. 
I still cannot believe you got fucking Apoc from the goddamn Matrix to come on our podcast and you did it so fucking casually like the cool boy you are with your just below the nips leather jacket, you fucking monster. <laughs> so here, thank you so much for getting uh, him on the show. You didn't even mention the fact that I that I met Timuro Morrison on a plane. You know, Boba Fett on a plane. Is he Boba Fett or Django Fett? I, I don't forget. care. <laughs> He's always going to be Jake the Must to me uh, and Dr. Hone Ropata. Timuro Morrison, who's also going to be in The Mandalorian. I met him on a plane. I could, I, no, I could not get Timuro Morrison on the podcast, but I will definitely try. And we are now <laughs> one degree from Keanu Reeves, so. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, that was a great interview. Um, so many fun fucking Little tidbits you uh, got out of it. That, that Lawrence, Lawrence Fishburne. Fishburne. Yeah, Lawrence we both said at the same time. The fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turns oh out the fish God. is cooler than we think. Um, no. Uh, yeah. Thanks again, Julian. Uh, and you know, thank um, you, Julian. It's it's just I had forgotten that Julian was in the movie. And again, it's because it's not because he isn't amazing in it, but because I just have not thought about this movie. Uh, terribly much. I do like the action sequences in this movie, and I will, I will dip into those every now and again. I'll kind of like remember. Oh, I want to see how the um, the Burly Man fight and Reloaded went, and you know, like what works about it, what doesn't work about it. I do love the car chase scene and Reloaded as well. And for me personally, I kind of love Revolutions in terms of just being a post-apocalyptic, you know, uh, war movie. And I think, you know, to me, that kind of kind of plays. I am looking forward for the first time in a long time to rewatching uh, Reloaded and Revelations. Revelations or Revolution? Revolutions. Revolutions. I um, got to be honest with you. These, those movies do not work. <laughs> well, but, but like, I, I know that. Like, when, even when yeah. I was younger, I knew when a film worked and when it didn't work. And, <laughs> and so far, it's like, I've always loved The Matrix. I've always loved the highway scene in Reloaded. And then I never even thought about uh, the third one. Um, I paid a lot of attention to the architect scene this time around. That's what I was really when I went when I rewatched the Reloaded. I really wanted to because I remember watching the architect scene in the theater and just going, "What the hell is going on here?" And in terms of in terms of like it doesn't even feel coherent as a as a single conversation. It's not even like my dinner with Andre. It, right. I mean, what's weird is it is my dinner with Andre. Like suddenly the movie dips into my dinner with Andre, and that's that's the problem with Reloaded in particular is that it's my dinner with Andre peppered with action scenes. And the my dinner with Andre stuff is, like, not coherent right. or or even enjoyable to watch. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I don't so, know, but, but what I'm looking forward to is because when I, when I first saw them, I knew I didn't particularly care for them, but it was in a straight up, you know, when I was younger, I, was, I feel like I was far more petulant. If you can imagine oh, such a more thing. More pitching? Yeah. yeah. wait. And like, I would like to now watch it with, uh, uh, after. Wait, so you were angry when you saw, when you saw Reloaded and Revolutions? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Well, well, what's your, what's your, what's your angry about, bro? It was a young, dumb, <laughs> stupid boy who thought the, he thought he'd figured out the world. And it, it's, it's, it's a classic sort of stuff. I want to watch it now. Again, I haven't figured out the world, but now I know I haven't. And I just want to like, I want to be able to see it for what it is. I'm not sort of looking at like the cohesion of the quality style, but like honestly, what I, what it's trying to say. Um, right. And because I think that there is a message in there. I think it's, you know, uh, sloppy I, at yeah. parts. And I just, I would like to, I would like to try to decode it myself again, because I don't think, I think the, the, um, 
the petulance of just no, oh, this is this sucks. This isn't as good. Kind of blinded me to even even remotely thinking about what the film could be trying to say. And I feel like after what two hundred and seventy goddamn episodes of this thing too, like and uh, twenty one years later, I think I can I think I can get a better read. Okay, um, All right. it's 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 interesting. It is interesting to re- to revisit these in an entire trilogy and and to see how kind of disjointed they feel. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, coming back to the first one, you know, nineteen ninety nine, uh, this movie, uh, you know, basically swept the entire planet and transformed. You know, everything from this movie becomes a conversation about what is post matrix and pre matrix, and what is what you know how do films derive you know like the bullet time effect is kind of the most notable thing but how do films derive the way in which action choreography works and yeah. the way in philosophy works the way in you know uh costuming works in the, in movies as well we would never um, have a snyder cut or a snyder verse had the matrix not done what it did how so I'm talking oh. the way he shoots action sequences. The the um, uh, the stuff. The slow. The the 300. Uh, yeah. So I I think Snyder was able to take that language, but language and do something with it in his own way. I'm but not I, saying but he you, didn't. I'm just saying. But, but you're 100 percent correct. Yeah. The 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 and this is actually uh, uh you know in regards to what Stephen Gallagher was talking about in terms of the score is that what the Matrix really does is compress and expand time and that's what that single horn sound that you know uh in uh in the score is really about um and so i'm really glad that um gallagher stephen gallagher kind of pointed that out to us go check out last week's episode music and movies which is an episode I really it's love. real good and stephen's uh, dope and stephen's dope but i i uh, and, and you know and again i i really want to uh preface all of this by saying um the movie's transition this first movie is strikes such a great balance between conversations about big ideas and embedding those conversations into action i think it does a really really miraculous job of that um you know and i think it given that this was the 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 wachowski second film um i really love bound by the way if you've if anyone's seen bound uh the uh, is it Gina Gershon and uh, Jennifer Tilly? Um, yes. Uh, sort of heist uh, thriller. Uh, really beautiful movie. I think Joey Pants is in this as well. Joey Pantanello. Pantel- Pantiol. Ah, oh, how do you say his name? Um, I always call him Joey Pants. Um, and hey, yeah, Joey you know, Pants. Uh, the the transition that they make from that film to this film is ex- it's like it's a light year leap. And and what's cool about it is I think every big idea that they have about movie making they implement here in a way that is not pastiche and in a way that is not just homage it is a way that is like fully embedded you know so their love of martial arts um you know uh, kung fu movies comes through their loves of uh, the love of anime comes through their ideas about philosophy comes through and they innovate all of that with the sort of language of how to shoot all of that in a sort of beautiful way bill pope's cinematography is extraordinary that green sickly hue that kind of becomes the 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 mm-hmm. way in which we do action movies from this point forward um again all of this is extraordinary the fact this movie was made in australia at fox studios you know as uh, as julian was talking about you know kind of a herald of the way that we think about international co-productions and finally you know we talked about this in the interview as well how multicultural this particular film is and how you you know unabashedly multicultural it is, it yeah. is you know while there is a central sort of hollywood leading man at the top of this film it's anchored by so many great performances around that from actors of you know 
wide um, ethnic uh, backgrounds that really does make it kind of feel um, like a beautiful tapestry. And it kind of makes you, I mean, it makes you, granted, the the future it paints is uh, a rough one, but but the fact that there are so many different people represented sort of... I guess sort of in a meta way, sort of you get that thing like, oh, it's the future. There's people of all different, uh, you know, cultures and creeds and, and things here. Like, they're, like that's how the future is going to be. Like, granted, they're fighting giant robots and there's a lot of right. problems. But, like, but that's how the world turns out. Because yeah. guess what? Spoiler alert, if we don't blow up, that's how the world turns out. Like, yeah. you, and, you and I will eventually have a kid and, you know, they will be brown. And, yes. You know, that's, that's just the way yes. it's going to be. But also uh, really fucking nerdy. Uh, oh man! Ooh. If we had a kid, though, like, what if they just loved sports? Oh man! What would we both do in that scenario? I guess join a softball <laughs> league. I don't fucking know. <laughs> We'd be the. We would also be the worst softball parents. Oh yeah, of all time. We yeah. would be the the worst. Um, I'm just imagining what this kid would look like now. Um, uh, gorgeous. <laughs> truly. Truly uh, a heaven on earth. Uh, um, I did uh, side note this. Sorry, we're tangenting onto our looks, but I was on the Uvra Busters podcast for the um, for the Lego uh, Lego Batman movie recorded yeah. earlier today. I believe this will come out. This pod, our podcast will come up before that. But they've been doing some great work with all of the Batman franchises. Sheer, you've been on that show before, um, yeah. and uh, I did say in my bio that I am. Uh, the one half of the only podcast about movies, but I specified, and I said the less intelligent but more handsome. <laughs> and then we talked. That? We talked. I'm not. I'm not going to spoil it for you or the audience. But then we <laughs> talked about handsomeness between you and I for a good two minutes. So, oh boy. and of course, I'm... we talked for an hour about Lego Batman. So go check out that <laughs> podcast, uh, one way or the other. I'm excited. Uh, you know, and just coming back to that point about multiculturalism, you know, the film even cast Cor- uh, Cornell West in the uh, in the sequel, uh, who has a role as one of the sort of elder councils. And, you know, he talked about the fact that he was excited to do the movie um, because uh, one of the most fundamental parallels between his work in the Matrix movies, West, uh, and this is quoting him, is the fi- founds in the film multiracial casting. In the city of Zion, most citizens are people of color, and many of the movie's leading actors are black. Lawrence Fishburne, Jada Pickett-Smith, Nona Gay, Harry Lennox, Harold Perrineau, and the late Gloria Foster. People, and this is uh, again quoting from West, people of color outnumber whites in the world's population. It's not just the representation of numbers, and the, but the humanity displayed, said West, whose writings urge cross-cultural tolerance and recognition of the power of diversity. Yeah. The acknowledgement and the, uh, of the full-fledged and complex humanity of black people is a new idea in Hollywood, given all the stereotypes and distortions. So there's no, again, no denying the power of it. And I think, you know, in many ways, uh, this has probably been brought on by Boudriad himself, is that you know the film has been maligned in philosophy circles as kind of misrepresenting a lot of Boudriad's work. Uh, Jean Boudriad, who's, uh, who wrote uh, Simulacra and Simulation, which book is featured... Book in the movie. Yeah, book in the movie, you know, right up top. Uh, but I, I think, again, I, I think sort of discrediting the movie to say, oh, well, it doesn't understand what Boudriad's work was, is, 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 is doing a disservice to what the movie is doing which is that it's bringing together a lot of different ideas and bringing them together as an action movie with a real sense of like how those ideas work so even if if they don't really get simulacra and simulation kind of correct in this film that's not what the film's about exactly Uh, it you know like it is you know like it's also one part plato's the cave you know and interesting thing about philosophical concepts when presented in in different mediums other than let's say your philosophy book you wrote 
is that people can adjust them, silly. Like, the, the, are, you, are you talking to me or to Jean Baudrillard? To Jean Baudrillard, because okay, cool. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean you're just presenting the information. Um, but like, uh, it's 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 it always it always gets me when, and this doesn't happen often, but this is a specific case. It's like, yeah, it's not the thing you wrote. The thing you wrote was kind of a basis, and they took some things from it and they moved it around. Yeah. Um, thought isn't copywritten, and therefore, you know, they could do their version of what you thought. Yeah, I mean, it's as, it's as much a book about philosophy as it is a, an interpretation of Alice in Wonderland. You know, like, it is as much a, about Plato's The Cave as it is about simulacra and simulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's as much about Descartes, Descartes, you know, uh, I think, therefore I am, as it is about everything. So, it, and it is as much it's all, all it, of those It's things. as much a trans allegory as any of these things as well. These things are not uh, exclusive, nor, uh, nor making it sort of, like, impossible to be everything. Like... Yeah, I, I'm not. I I'm sort of hesitant to read it as a as a fully fledged trans allegory, just because the authors themselves are trans. Um, That's not I, why. I, That's not why. But, I, but, but I can certainly see the idea, and you know, like we have talked about this a lot on on the podcast, is the idea of interpretive text. You know, for example, the Wizard of Oz being uh, Wizard of Oz being read as a as a gay text. You know, I can certainly see why this film's idea of transformation and coming into oneself um, resonates in that way. Um, oh, 100 percent. I'm saying yeah. that there there are a lot of different layers to this thing. And depending like I, I think we're sort of saying the same thing. But uh, in a few interviews by the Wachowskis, they have sort of said that while I, I believe how it went was while they were crafting it, they didn't like actively do that. But they mm -hmm. can see now the and sort of upon reflection again over the course of 21 years, um, you know, how that that most certainly is in there it's just yeah, and it, but like again actually even going back to the wonderful email at the beginning of the episode yeah, like about authorial intent at this point which is you know like to say that it's not to say that this is revealing a truth about themselves but the work comes from a point of view that will be filtered into the work itself yeah. so if it can be read that way you know sure uh and and you know uh and it, it should can. be as well yeah yeah. So the 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 part that I have an issue with here with we this go. Film, Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> and it, it, it for anyone who's known me it, who long enough and we've ever got into a conversation about the Matrix, it is it is this the same issue I've had with this film since I saw it in 1999. And okay. I, I wondered. I was really curious rewatching. I was like, maybe that's something I just don't even care about anymore, and it doesn't really even matter. Um, but you and did. I will. <laughs> but it it. it I certainly didn't feel the 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 thing that I was wondering about was diminished by this film. And I think the reason why is that it's reflected not only in a narrative through line, but also in an aesthetic through line, in an aesthetic quality of the film. Okay. Uh, and it comes down to also the conversation we had last week about uh, music and movies as well. But this is, I'll paraphrase it all by calling it the Death Star Conundrum. And the reason I call it the Death Star Conundrum is it comes from Kevin Smith's um, uh, monologue, well, it's not his monologue, but the, the monologue that he had written for the movie Chasing Amy about the, the problem of the rebels uh, destroying the Death Star. Or no, actually, sorry, in Clerks. It yeah, was in, in Clerks. Clerks, I was going to say, yeah. 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 There is another monologue about Star Wars in Chasing Amy as well about uh, race race relations in the Star Wars universe. It was a lot of fun. Um but the you know, like the, the to paraphrase the, 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 the clerk's monologue is it's it's uh contractors on the Death Star being killed by the rebels. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and the the sort of 
um, the lack of clarity about collateral damage in that world and how what it means. And for me, you know, like the thing that always it just it, it, it hit me when I watched it in 1999 and it hit me when I watched it again is the couple of ideas that the that the uh, the resistance in this film puts forward. One, the, the sort of key idea is that if you die in the Matrix, you die in the real world. And the second, and that is contrasted with this idea that is, we are trying to save humanity. We are the last bastion of what humanity can be. And we believe fundamentally in the power of people being able to open their minds and, and, um, and fight back against the machines and, and, and take back control of their lives and their destiny, essentially. That is countered by this hallway shootout. Uh, towards the second half of the movie, where uh, the movie kind of, to, in my mind, not not necessarily abandons it, but really kind of betrays essentially what they want to do versus what they were, are talking about this film is about. Um, essentially, at the at the back half of the film, we get the famous sort of like, uh, I'm going to have to bust in to save ne- uh, Morpheus. What do I need? Guns, lots of guns. Uh, and they walk through a hallway and kind of, and fairly indiscriminately shoot um, you know, with a, with a lot of glee in the film, uh, a lot of security guards. Um, and their, the sort of rationalization in the movie is that um, these people aren't aware that they could be hijacked by um, uh, Smith at some the point. Agents, yeah. uh, the agents at some point. But they're in, in, these, in this sequence, they are not. They, you know, they're, they're just killed. So we're to presume that these are people that uh, are in the Matrix that will now die um, you know, uh, in the real world as we understand it. Now, I, I don't think that's a, a terrible, terrible... You know, like, the, you know, movies do this all the time. We, we you know, like the, the, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe had to sort of address this in, uh, in uh, Avengers Age of Ultron, you know, like the collateral damage of what it is the, the Marvel, uh, the Avengers do. You know, movies kind of address and, and work through this sort of stuff all the time. I well, think the, the collateral is, damage happened in Age of Ultron. They dealt with it in uh, Captain America Civil War. No, in Age of Ultron, they they um, uh, worked to ensure that there was no collateral damage. Oh, they they on... tried to lessen collateral. You're saying that yeah. the meta, yeah, sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, th- yeah. I thought you meant in the actual world, like they actually then the world started doing something about it. But continue. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, and the problem is, is that the f- it's not just a, a narrative consequence that the film isn't quite dealing with. It's also that the aesthetic qualities of the film shift in that moment and is and kind of reveals that they're willing to abandon the sort of core ideological standpoint of the characters to kind of have to, to have a, a fun action sequence in this moment. And and that has always bothered me. Here's because oh yeah sorry. because it 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 reveals a kind of mishmashing of tonality here. And I think it it reveals a kind of um inability well not necessarily an inability it's it's you know because this is my beef and i think i'm the only you know like one of a few people that 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 has this issue i don't think you're the only one but it reveals that you know like they don't it it makes you feel like they don't necessarily really believe in the narrative as much as they kind of want to have a cool action scene at this moment Uh, and the cool action scene undermines what they're trying to do in the narrative i I agree with the read of it. I disagree that they are are diminishing what their narrative is. What I think is happening, and this is again all opinion and conjecture, conjecture, excuse me, um, is basically this movie overall is so fucking polished, and it is smart, and it has its fingers in a lot of different pies, and it's spinning a lot of plates with those pies on them, and it's not dropping a one. 
in order to hold up a pie, it has to do something quick and keep moving on. And the 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 interesting thing is, through narrative and it's sort of sort of a lot of a quick sort of uh, exposition to camera sort of stuff, it does explain a few things. It explains that the yes, like Shahir said, the 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 any human can be uh, an agent. Therefore, we have to treat them when it's these extreme circumstances, like they are the enemy. We mentioned that once or twice in the film. Now. I don't think that's enough to justify this, but then the other thing that they touch on, but the rest of the movie is so like flashy and and meaningful and distracting that I always sort of forget about it, is the, the stakes of this moment. So so Shahir, what are at what's at stake when they go into the Matrix? There, uh, they're trying to rescue Morpheus, who will uh, give away their position for Zion. Yes. So the 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 takeaway here is. If they if the machines crack Morpheus, humanity is dead, or or the only free people. And this is again in the sequels. There's but they don't know all that shit at this point. Um, yeah, Morpheus has not, uh, Neo has not seen Zion at this point. Right. So so literally, all free humans will die. And they make, and and what I think should have sort of happened to sort of alleviate this a little bit. But I think you know time or or whatever is they should have had more of a conversation about how they were going to do it rather than that sort of like coolish sort of like guns, lots of guns thing. Like it should have been a little bit of a back and forth and kind of come into like, I want the gray area discussion. Like, and I don't want to bring this too much into to real life, but like, for instance, it's a reason why when we talk about war films about sort of them being propaganda versus like, like what's the point of a war film, yada, yada, yada. War is crazy complicated. And the morals of of what is going on between who and, like, why and, like, who thinks what is the greater good and how, like, there's a lot. And in this particular case, Neo and and Trinity and the rest of the people that are surviving on on the Nebuchadnezzar are trying to literally save what they think is the rest of humanity, and they're making dark choices to do it. I do wish the film addressed it more, but it doesn't break it enough for me to make it sort of, like, a conundrum where I'm like, ah, you gave up movie. Like, yeah, and, that's kind of where the, I'm at. The issue here is, is that it does betray it in the sense that the aesthetic of the film changes at that moment. It becomes a flashy shootout. And it's the, and to be really blunt about it, it's the music that changes. It becomes like this sort of like, dun, 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 versus like the sort of more, uh, we had that and, song when Morpheus and, and Neo were fighting. Yeah, but that's and that's a battle between those two people, and it's kind of fun. And sure, it's but cool, the music didn't change from like that wasn't the first time that music happened. They've been playing no, 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 music. No, no, but, like but what I'm saying time. is that the film gets scored. This sequence gets scored with a fun. Let's have some fun and, and enjoy the visuals of this moment, as opposed to like, hey, you're kind of straight up murdering people at this point. And and that's what I mean is the aesthetic quality of the film changes and but it and doesn't change it stays consistent it does see this is the thing I I get the criticism the criticism is not what I'm what I'm what I'm sort of butting up against the aesthetic of the film stays the same it should have in my opinion to get to, more to your point gone a little darker and not had that sort of like super fun moment in order to sort of do that because the rest of the film is that the tone does not change the tone is consistent we're just in dark fucking territory now. Yeah, we're in. We're well. I think what I what I'm saying here is that the, you know, like 
the action sequences take on a tone which is playful as opposed to real understating what is actually happening here and it's and it's understating wh- what is actually happening within the rules of the world that this that this movie has set up and you know like if if for example they you know if the film had kind of just said these are all agents agents in this whole in this AIs, whole lobby whatever yeah yeah you, you, what you know you can kind of like the the film allows you to engage in that playfulness uh, and that sort of enjoyment of it because it become they become fodder. But they've already set up at the beginning of the film that these people who are in this room are not agents; they're just people. And the the problem is as well as it it kind of contextually um, abandons our sense of geography as well as like what is this hallway? Why do we need to go into this particular hallway? Because the next scene we're in a helicopter on a rooftop. You know, like what is? And so it's clearly a choice. Well, they took an elevator is, up to the rooftop. <laughs> Of another building. That's no, that building. Across they, the, go, they no, go it is of another building because they shoot out another building. They they shoot through the window from another building no, uh, the, on the helicopter. The the plan was because they couldn't break into the agent's building. They break into the adjacent building and then they were going to yeah. get over to the other building from the top of that first building. Right. And so, it, the, but the geography of like needing to do this, like, like as we understand it, they probably, if they just didn't have all the guns, could just walk through that hallway. But they take all the guns and, you know, it, it look, it can be explained away at points, but the murder of all of those guards and the gleeful way in which it's executed left a bad taste in my mouth. And it left a sense in my mouth that this was a betrayal of the idea of revolution in this film. Yeah, I just and, did, I didn't get that. I get I get I get the the look, but I get yeah. I get where you're coming from. I just didn't I didn't get that from right. And I but that that was a reading I had of it in 1999. That was a reading I had of it now. And it's 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 it problematize it. it what it does for me is it kind of just says, well, the movie is trying to um, espouse a philosophy about revolution and about you know like understating the idea that people need to you know we we uh, humanity it deserves to be saved. But it does it with this sort of gleeful sort of like murder, mass murder of people. And like the fact that the film was kind of like, again, maligned uh, in the sort of wake of Columbine for, you know, being, you know, for glorifying violence and sort of having that sort of fodder-esque, a fodder-esque sense of the way in which people can be annihilated and doesn't really address it just means that the film, list, you know, like it lessens its, its, its potential impact. And it's not something that, you know, um, if we think about... Um, Terminator 2's sort of handling of you can't go around killing people and therefore he shoots kneecaps. You know, it's like we still sort of, we still kind of understand how those sequences work. And, and although it's not playing in the same field, there's just a sense in this film that, that for me have always been a little bit uneasy with. Sure. And that's uh, fine. The, the Columbine thing is an interesting thing because, of course, the Matrix and a lot of other <laughs> things were scapegoats for that fucking monster and a lot of monsters since then. Yeah, um, the, the the basketball diaries being the other one, the Leonardo DiCaprio film. So so, that's that. Um, the I I feel like I would have liked the film to basically it 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 is sponges expounds itself. Uh, it waxes poetic on a lot of different things, and that's the one thing that while it does explain away, and I understand that like what is happening and why it has to happen and the tough decision of it, it they don't treat it like a tough decision. So I do understand yeah. what that is. I, I, I do not think, and, 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 the, and the reason I think they don't treat it like a tough decision is keeping the movie's tone consistent. 
Um, like it's just now the movie decided to go to a dark place and it's like, ah, nah, we, no, we said those words. I, I get yeah. where you're coming from. I just, it never derailed me because I was like, okay. Like, cause I basically, well, actually let me rephrase. It derails me for a moment and then I'm like, wait, connect, connect, connect. Okay, fine. Like that's fine. Yeah, um, the, yeah. And I, and I, uh, I guess I come from a little bit of a point of view where I, I'm sort of, uh, I'm less fine with it, you know, like, because well, yeah. again, you know, like I, I think it is problematic and I, but, but more importantly, I think it's worth discussing, sure. more, you know, so write us in at only movie podcast at gmail.com. If you have the death star conundrum with this film, the other part of this film that I kind of like, uh, watched and thought about a lot now is that, you know, essentially is movie one and then two and three kind of posits this idea that Smith is the, is the counterpoint to Neo. He is, you know, like the Oracle even says, sure. he is your inverse and that sort of thing to me. Cypher is the more interesting villain. Cypher is the is the much more interesting villain of this film, and and it's it's weird because he gets he essentially gets dispatched in at, at the end of Act Two, um, but he is the one who I think I find the most compelling on a rewatch in terms of what he wants because his intent you know like S- Smith you know like. Um, uh, becomes uh, a sort of full-on, you know, mustache-twirling villain by the end of uh, two and three, and it's and it's obvious that, you know, like uh, the performance there is worth uh, investing in. You know, like uh, Hugo Weaving really hams it up with this film and kind of has a lot of fun with it. And, you know, the voice and the timber of his, you know, Mr. Anderson, you know, is is just wonderful to listen to. But Cipher to me, and in terms of like his idea, his notion of like lit, I am much more in. Um, I am much more invested in the in the simulation than I am in the reality, and what is wrong with that? I think is actually a really interesting counterpoint to Morpheus to Neo. It's 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 directly in line with Plato's The Cave. Um, you know, like it is it is a far more to me out of all of this, it is a far more compelling counterpoint to Neo. I find it uh, I find it sort of there. I find they're equal in the first mm-hmm. film as far as what is interesting to me because they're two very different things between Smith and Cypher. Mm-hmm. I do think that Smith has the detriment of having you know in the the next two films although mm-hmm. Cypher doesn't Cypher sort of make like a weird cameo mm-hmm. in 3 or some uh, shit like he's like alive but not alive or I don't even <laughs> remember. <laughs> yeah. Um but the the um the Smith uh oh yeah cuz yeah, yeah doesn't he like I think Smith gets into Cypher's body somehow. No, no, he gets into a, an, another character, um, a completely random character, and, oh, and okay. reloaded ends with one of the worst like cliffhangers ever, where you see this character you know, and it's like, bomb, and you're like, wait, who is that? Who is that? Like, okay. Why do I care? But yeah. the interesting thing is, so I think Smith and the Smith legacy of what is sort of interesting about Smith gets lost. I will say. Mm. Uh, I love Cypher's sort of angle because it's an mm. angle that we don't see from anyone else. But mm-hmm. I love Smith because Smith, at least in this movie, does it. it le- Smith is the John Wick universe of this film, right? So when you hint at the specialities of the John Wick universe, it is so fucking interesting. When like, you well, when you, you mean? when you pull like the the coins and the hotel and the community of assassins and stuff like that, like it all feels like there's sheen and it feels like there's always something to be discovered around another corner. By the time John Wick 3, and again, I liked John Wick 3, but by the time we get to that, it becomes so big and convoluted and the lights are all on and you're like it's the club after hours at 4 a.m. and you're like, oh shit, the floor is covered in piss. Like you're kind of just like, you're, you you can see all the, the, the cracks and the edges, which is what sort of happens with Smith in 2 and 3. Here, the most interesting moment in this movie for me, straight up, is a soulless sort of machine that the whole thing is like the, the, what they supposedly want 
is to, you know, make sure everything is optimal and regimented and, like, nothing can exist without a purpose and, like, machine, 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 AI, right? Here is a machine in that moment when uh, he's interacting with a chained-up Morpheus. Mm, his uh, monologue is great. He's doing, like, sort of, sort of waxing ecstatic about ecstatic. I, don't, I hate that phrase. I keep using it, and I use it wrong. Um, but he's basically philosophizing to Morpheus about like, I've actually classified your species. You're not mammals. You're a virus. And that's like all cool and interesting and whatever. But then when he takes the fucking earpiece out and he gets like honest with him, like he's played the part of an agent the entire fucking movie. And then you get a look and you're like, shit, these AIs have desires and personalities and they are stuck in their system. Right. And all Agent Smith wants at that point, as written in this film, is to go the fuck home. He does not want to be in this place. It is not designed for him, and he fucking hates it. And he wants order to be established so he can go back and, I don't know, retire yeah, on a server farm like, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't fucking matter. But, yeah. like, it's he gets emotional and angry, and it's... It's the most interesting part of what's supposed to be like it added a layer of that side of the the villain angle to me. Mm. Like Cypher was great, but I understood Cypher and it was an angle of the of of sort of humanity we didn't get. This showed that AI wasn't just a blind zeros and ones killing machine. AI had wants. And that yeah, and to me was a, like an was a more woe moment and a more appreciative of that like aspect of villainy. But again, again, Two and three, turn him into a Dragon Ball Z villain, and yeah. uh, that's you know. Still, I, I like the I like the uh, not the Burly Man fight, but the Superman fight in the in uh, Revolutions. That is a hundred percent actual like shot for shot. I'll call it an homage, not a ripoff of a Dragon Ball Z episode. Right. Yeah. It's 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 a lot of fun. Um, I really like uh, Smith's monologue about human beings being a virus. Yep. Um, you know, like exhibiting the same qualities as a virus in terms of like using all the resources and then depleting them and moving on to another and replicating. I think that's a really that's a really smart piece of villain writing. Um, yeah. It's and really, really good. Now that I'm thinking about it, you do get baby hints throughout this film of Smith being different from the other. Yeah. The other AI. For instance, when he's reading uh, Neo is rights and he's describing the two lives of him, he's like in one you're Mr. Mm. Thomas Anderson, who does this, that and the other thing. And helps his landlady take out the garbage. <laughs> and he just sort of does this, like, ugh, sort of, like, face move. And yeah. you can tell how fucking disgusted he is with humans. And at first, you're just like, oh, machine don't like humans. But then in, in retrospect, it might even have more to do with the garbage. He talks about, it's the smell. I feel saturated by it. And it's yeah. like... Oh fuck! It's so it's, good. It's good. I find his uh, motivations as a villain still to be a little less interesting than um, than uh, Cipher's because Cipher's his... speaks directly. Cipher speaks directly to what the film, the film's first act is about. You know, Cypher's which is like philosophy. there is this reality that we are kind of that we have bought into. Yeah, Cipher's philosophy is more interesting but it's the exact polar opposite so like i kind of saw it coming i guess whereas this was a thing that i loved the take and it was a new hot take that i hadn't even like begun to think about like the movie lulled me into a sense of security and then was like but guess what bad yeah. guys aren't as simple as you thought and you're like oh no like i don't know i yeah i i do agree that to the story 
it is a more natural foil and an interesting conversation piece. However, it did not capture my imagination because I kind of like if you see uh you know a light shining on something you can probably figure out what the shadow of that object looks like behind it. It's like it's it you know I did not understand that analogy at all, but um well, it's because uh, it was an analogy, not an analogy. Analogy, you didn't like my analogies? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, then uh, the other thing, just, you know, again, just to really bring it back though, what was impressive is the sequencing and escalation of action sequences, um, to, you know, again, the, the hallway shootout, notwithstanding, which, which I do just find tacky compared to everything else that comes after it. Um, you know, the, 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 the fight, uh, on the rooftop, that introduces us to the bullet time effect and Neo now has this like special power. Um, and then, you know, it escalates with this, uh, with the helicopter flying, the jumping across the, and, and then seeing the helicopter crash and, you know, everything falling apart. That is a, that, you know, like, again, the thing that we loved about Mad Max Fury Road was the sense of escalation of stakes. That is a beautiful escalation of stakes that continues to grow and develop. It's, it's so, so well put together yeah um i i think but, i think the lobby shootout is the least impressive even looking scene now to yeah. be perfectly honest uh it, it's like the wire work which was sort of revolutionary then like just looks yeah. a little off now um, yeah it, but it but it is the scene that kind of i think the reason why i kind of get uneasy about it is it's the scene that kind of you can imagine young males getting excited oh about. sure it's like yeah. it's i mean i did. guns lots of guns the, you know to be honest though the scene that stuck with me then and sticks with me now is neo and smith uh fighting in the subway yeah it's a that, yeah like you know that's a great uh great scene and i i mean the, the to me it's the it's the hel- the the helicopter element crashing you know and it crashes into the building and it ripples mm. uh you know i just love that because it's it's not just a beautiful effect but it's also kind of like oh there the matrix is uh uh, bending in a way that which shouldn't be. Yeah, the, the, and one other thing, so to to to, to be the the yin to this yang of of action and sort of the escalation that's a hundred percent true. Escalation is one thing you need in action movies, but also what the what the Matrix this movie does. I don't really think the second and third one do well. Um, is actually make you care about all these characters, especially even ones that don't have a lot of screen time. And what it does is it adds specific human moments to certain fight scenes. And the one that stands out to me is when Neo and Morpheus are sparring and they're in the, the training program. Yeah. And right. Mouse runs into the cafeteria yeah. and goes, Morpheus is fighting Neo! And it's like that like little kid pause and then they yeah. all clamor off. Like it's like kids looking at it like Christmas morning, like going to open their presents. And it's like at that moment, you're like, even subconsciously, I'm like, this is a family. Yeah. Like, and... and that, that Apoc should have been the leader of. Sure, yes, but like that means <laughs> justice for Apoc. He, he got he got yeah. he got taken out pretty pretty uh, in a bad yeah, way. Yeah. Fuck you, Cipher. Um, yeah. But like that's the whole thing, and that even makes like the Cipher turn heel. Like the knife twist hurt more. That makes the deaths of these people we haven't had a ton of time with both Acon, uh, Acon, Apoc, Switch, Mouse. Like it makes us tank dozer. It makes us like care about them. And it's 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 a very good filmmaking trick or, or, or tool, I'll say tool in the tool belt that can make characters that are side characters still feel like active, real-life people. Uh, and I yeah. really appreciate that. It made me ca- Caring about those characters made me care about the action scenes more. I, I wonder, you know, like, uh, it seems like 
particularly APOC Switch. Mouse sort of seems to have a little bit more. Mouse has bionic. the most out of the, yeah, the tertiary. But, but APOC and Switch kind of seem to be dispatched fairly quickly, and you start to wonder what their purpose in the movie was and like whether there was more to be done with them. Mm. Um, you know, And essentially they get kind of, those characters kind of get recast in the second and third movies as, as newer versions of those characters. Yeah. And so they're, I, you, you're sort of wondering what, what they're, you know, but but I, I fully agree though that the the writing here is good to make it feel like a cohesive whole, even if even if we're not exactly sure why these pieces are together. But you know, that's kind of yeah. how uh, groups operate. Yeah. Um. So yeah, and then you know, look, let's jump into you know, I, I rewatched Reloaded and, Re- and Revolutions, and I the reason I like Revolutions is that Revolutions uh, essentially. Uh, foregoes most of the philosophizing in one and two, and just says, "Let's do a post-apocalyptic battle movie." Oh, whoa, and- whoa, whoa! And I, I need to rewatch it, but yeah. th- the whole thing changes a little bit of what it's sort of saying about f- philosophizing, and basically, at least from what I remember, becomes a pretty straightforward uh, Jesus Christ analogy. Oh, the the movie's a Jesus Christ analogy from frame one. You know, like this is the this is the 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 special kind of story, the the one. Yeah. Um, but but the second and third film, in pawn rewatching, does do some interesting, does play with those ideas in interesting ways. You know, the first one is the idea is that Neo's not necessarily the one yep. one. You know, like there there are many ones that have come before him, and they all tend to do the same thing. Um, and then you know, like I think the interesting thing in in two and three is the idea that. They posit is is that Neo's choice isn't the choice to save humanity. Humanity, it's a choice between fate and destiny. And you know, like, can we make choices that affect our lives in interesting ways? And is the greater is the is the the good of the entirety better than the good of one? Um, it's it's a it gets you know like not gonna lie, this thing this thing gets messy, and it's it sort of to me. Uh, I guess has always been a little bit less interesting than other films that came out around this period. I, I still contend, I think Fight Club, for example, which is a movie less explicitly about a reality bending, but more sort of internally philosophizing about like, what is the nature of the choices we make? It's personal is, reality bending. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is, and is a more consistent and cohesive uh, experience around that, around a singular idea, mm-hmm. you know, um, I haven't revisited it, but David Cronenberg's film Existence, which came out around the same period, you know, similarly, I think took me, uh, affected me a little bit more because there was a sort of internal consistency about it that felt a little bit more clear to me. Um, uh, but 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 there's no there's no denying that not, neither of those two films or any of the other films that I'm you know that you can posit around this period of that sort of like premillennial angst, uh, premillennial sort of uh, existential angst. Uh, has ever is ever going to trump the Matrix in terms of its cultural relevance? Sure, you know, like the, the, it's just not going to happen. I can't wait for whatever the next Matrix is. Not Matrix Four, which I'm I'm hopeful, but also I'm not getting like terrible hopes up for either. I. Uh, I, I wish it the best. I'm. I can't wait to see it. I just. I'm not going to be like, oh man, I'm fucking. Bu-. Like, it's just. I don't know. I just don't know yeah. about that. I'm talking more about like, what is the next generation sort of thing that fits into the 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 place that the Matrix fit? Like, yeah, and and I think what happened there is that the 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 movies that eventually took the place of cultural relevance of the Matrix were essentially long form franchises. You know, they were. Uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Harry Potter trilogy, the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and 
the the thing the the impression that the matrix left behind has i can't think of something that has replicated that sort of original vision which captured the public imagination there'll be one uh, and you know it's weird you know it's kind of odd and again it's a different medium i understand this but honestly a close thing would be before the end game of thrones very close very uh, close it's so interesting it's so fascinating how we are stuck in a quarantine. I forget if I've said this before. This was something uh, that um, my friend Spencer said. He's like, we're stuck in a quarantine where we have to sort of stay home and watch things. And people are watching a lot of things that were comfortable. And no one is rewatching Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. And it's so strange because think about to a year and a half ago or whatever before this final season. Like all people were fucking talking about was Game of Thrones. And now it's it is just erased itself much like aspects of the 1918 flu pandemic because they were too painful uh, history kind of wrote it out of the books uh nothing's happening with game of thrones right now it's funny because i recall uh, as we were leading up to game of thrones and it was also the lead up to the end of the mcu yep. i think i said and i'm now will have to eat my words when i said it was that i was i would be fine with game of thrones dropping the ball because it's been such a great ride for me versus uh, needing the MCU to to stick the landing. Yeah. And boy, was I wrong about that because <laughs> how okay. they really dropped the ball on that one. Um, look, The Matrix is an important movie. Uh, is it? Is, does it earn its importance uh, upon rewatching it for me? I'm not entirely sure. I think um, the issues that I've, you know, the Death Star conundrum or the, the hallway shootout conundrum about this has always left a sour taste in my mouth. But if you've listened to the podcast, it's, you know, things like that where there's a gleeful sense of... Um, uh, of murder that is that ultimately betrays what the films are trying to talk about is something that I've always had issues with. If you think about Deadpool and John Wick and you know those sorts of things, uh, so that's not inconsistent. Maybe this is the the ground zero of that uh, idea for uh, forming in my brain. Um, but without a doubt, uh, it is you know one of the the most significant uh, culturally relevant films of the 21st century, and you know like points to. Uh, can be read in so many interesting ways um, that it, you know, its its rewatchability is is endless. The other thing that you know, we though I you've watched it twice, <laughs> though I have watched it twice, yeah. But I here's the thing: I watched all three, and uh, you know, like three weeks ago, I said I'm watching Lord of the Rings. You know, I'm rewatching Lord of the Rings. I have not finished those Lord of the Rings well, that's movies hard. yet. Uh, whereas this, I was like, yeah, I'll just throw these on, and I was kind of like gung ho about it. Um, the, the one other thing that we talked, you know, in terms of the film being ahead of its time, we talked briefly about it in the, the Julian interview was the idea that, you know, two and three had this sort of transmedia aspect to it, where the path of the Neo, the video game was going to connect reloaded and revolutions in some way. And you were, you know, you could play through the game and then you Was it the path of Neo or was it enter the matrix that was during this time? Both of those games came out around that period. And and the idea was that characters in those games would... You could play through them, and then they would appear in the movie. And you see it happen in the movie as well, where uh, you know a, a, a side character will pop up, and if you've played the game, you'll know what have hap- what how that character ended up there. I think um, Enter the Matrix is the one that tied in with like sort of side stories with the films, yeah. and the Path of Neo was you sort of playing through the films. Like right, that was right. more of a classic adaptation where Enter the Matrix, uh, the main characters was Jada Pinkett Smith's character, and the right, other right, side yeah. one. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and um and also, you know, we're we're sort of uh, disregarding uh, the Animatrix and how the Animatrix so good uh, was a series of short films that kind of led up to it. So it's really interesting in terms of like building out this sort of entire world. And it's weird that that world hasn't um 
evolved much more. But, you know, I guess we'll see with um, The Matrix 4. I'm not entirely uh, enthused about revisiting the world. I think it's a, it's a nice, it's a neat little time capsule into itself. But who knows? Maybe we'll get a Mad Max 4 in, uh, in this, uh, in this uh, Matrix 4. Yeah, and I think, uh, I, think I, I still love this movie. I think um, that it, uh, one of my favorite things is sort of all the different ways that it can be read, things that it was intended, or how you can sort of take things from it. Uh, I love the sort of angles of villainy, like we said, uh, the action uh, anchored by moments of making you care about the characters. Uh, and even to Shahir's point, the the stuff I do think it does because everything in it is so excellent. The parts that it just sort of does okay, being the things like sort of not really dealing with the the the, the reality of the hallway scene, uh, is a is a a low point of the film. Um, uh, but however, overall as a whole, this thing I was still shocked how it just fucking held up. And, oh, it holds up. Yeah, it totally holds up. Uh, and uh, for that, I would say if you are bored and you have not, if you're on Watch 31 or 3, uh, I suggest you uh, go check it out because they're all on Netflix right now. And uh, we, you know, we're, we're getting, we're running low on our on our, on our our new cinema coming out. So um, there's so much stuff I still got to catch up with. So I'm not, I'm not fussed about it. Yeah. Uh, um, well, this yeah. has been the only podcast about the film The Matrix. I am 100% sure that is true. Shahir, <laughs> when you are not retiring at the end of your long day on your server farm and daydreaming about what tasty wheat tastes like, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me weaving together a nipple-length uh, leather jacket on my website, www.shahirdaud.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when I hand over the remnants of my leather so you can make a full floor, uh, full floor coat duster, uh, where can people find you? You can find me uh, sitting in my room full of TVs spouting really big words that kind of make sense together at M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L uh, dot com for my life and works. Also Skeletor, the number four P-R-E-Z or Emperor M-S-K on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we are doing over at Extra Credits. We just finished up our Dividing the Middle East series, I believe at this point, uh, about the debaucherous, uh, or I'll say debacle, of um of how the world powers carved up the Middle East after World War One. Uh, spoiler alert: they just took a ruler to a map and didn't <laughs> think about people. Uh, it's fascinating and it's stuff that I didn't learn in um in in American high school because they don't teach you it. Um, <laughs> and so it's a really good thing. Also, we're we got a, a great episode of um oh we're starting the Iliad soon. That'll be a two days after this, oh. I believe. So we're doing a four parter nice. on the extra mythology on the Iliad. So check those out. Uh, next week we'll be back with um, a movie. May oh, I've, actually, I have something lined up for that. I want to see if I can make all the pieces happen. Okay, but suffice to say, uh, you will be scared of going in the water. Okay, you you need to make sure that you are the puppet master pulling this. You are the agent here, and I am merely uh, uh, a lonely hacker with my mini discs. And my... You feel more like you feel more like just one of the side programs. You're the girl in the red dress at this point. Wow. <laughs> okay. You know what? I'll take it. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.